Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. Is this the booth drafting the circuits? Three-way theater or the Kevin Jackson show? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kinda lost track myself here on Hoobazoo.com. So, do you feel lucky, punk? Oscar Mike Radio. Come in. Come in, Oscar Mike Radio. Sinister One, this is Oscar Mike. I have Ulima Charlie over. I want to get this out of the way because I've waited years to say this, okay? <laughs> Uh-oh. What is your bidding, my mistress? <laughs> you don't want to ask an open-ended question like that with me. Well, I, have I, had, I had to say it. I had to say it. It's kind of like the Darth Vader where he says, you know, <laughs> hey, what's? it's the same thing. So I, I got that. We're all good. <laughs> We're all good. So, all right, folks, this is Travs with Oscar Mike Radio. Uh, I have a different kind of show tonight. I am joined. If you are in the Boston area, she needs no introduction. Her name is Mistress Carrie. For those of you who are worldwide, uh, this woman has been in the radio business for half my life at least and is still rocking it. Welcome to the show, Mistress Carrie. Thanks for having me. Quite an introduction. And I want to get this out of the way because I've waited years to say this, okay? <laughs> uh oh. What is your bidding, my mistress? <laughs> You don't want to ask an open-ended question like that with me. Just to date myself a little bit, I, I'm coming out of the Marine Corps, right? And I, I get off my motorcycle in the South Shore, and I turn on the radio, and there's this, this female voice, and she's going up against, at the time, I remember it was WBCN with Opie and Anthony, and then it was WAAF. You guys are like that redhead stepchildren. But I kept cluing in on this this woman's voice talking about rock and roll and being cool and groovy and i started just drilling into what you were saying and all this time later you guys are still here but the one thing i noticed about people in radio is they really love it and, and i just want to know what you got what got you into radio and what do you love about it well i originally had no intention of getting into radio at all i i loved music and so i wanted to be involved in the music business. You know, when I was in high school, it was the height of the 80s hair metal. Rock and roll was just a party and it was fun. And so originally I just wanted to work in the music business. And I had this dream about how glamorous and fun it would be to work in a recording studio. And anybody that works in audio at all just knows that glamorous and fun are not two words that Never. describe that profession at all. But that's what I thought. And so I started looking into like schools I could go to to learn audio editing and that kind of stuff. And there really weren't a lot of options to learn how to become an audio engineer. 
And my family was like, listen, you're either going to college or you're going to work full time at our Italian bakery. And I was like, all right, I'll go to college. So I started looking into like communications programs, radio programs, and I figured if I could get into one of those programs and at least learn remedial audio editing, that those skills would then help me move forward into what my dream was, which was to work in a recording studio. So I started going to school for radio and communications, and after my freshman year, I got an internship at a recording studio, and I spent an entire summer recording a 27-piece mariachi band, like literally one maraca at a time, and all of my preconceived notions about how glamorous and fun it would be to work in a recording studio came crashing down. I and at the end those of guys. That, those, are, those are weird people to do that. It takes a different kind of cat to do that. And this was back before digital editing and audio right. recording. This was also being done on tape back then. So I know I just dated myself again. So when the end, when that internship was over, I was like, you know what? At least I know this isn't what I want to do anymore. Right. And I had a friend that was working around the corner from the recording studio at WAF, and her and I used to meet up. Uh, for lunch because we were both doing internships at the same time. And so I went to meet her at the WAF offices to go meet her for lunch, and the production guy happened to walk by. And uh, his name was Mitch Todd, and he still works at Sirius XM now. He's got this big, bombastic, booming voice. And he was like, who are you? What are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm here to meet my friend. We're going up for lunch. And you know, we go to college together and he, you know, said, well, where do you work? And I told him at the recording studio around the corner. He asked me how I liked it. I told him that I didn't. He asked me what I was doing the rest of the summer. I said nothing. He said, well, intern for me. And I said, okay. So I started interning uh, July 1st, 1991 was my first day as an intern here at WAF. So it's been, you know, 26 something years. And I went from being an intern um to working part-time on the promotions team um, while I was still in college. I was driving the van, handing out bumper stickers at concerts, that kind of thing. And then you mentioned them earlier, Opie and Anthony. Uh, they were on the air at AAF at the time when okay. I was on the promotions team. Okay. And they got and they got fired in April of 98 for playing a practical joke on April Fool's Day about the mayor of Boston at the time. And right before they did that, I had applied to be their producer. I thought, well, Howard Stern is a female producer. Opie and Anthony could have a female producer. And I applied. I didn't get the job, ironically enough, because I didn't have enough production experience. But the program director at the time asked if I had any interest in actually being on the air. And I was like, no, not at all. I always thought I was going to be the person behind the scenes. And, you know, Opie told me I was an idiot for saying I wasn't interested. A few weeks later, one of the part-time people on the weekends got fired, so I started working part-time on the weekends. And then within a couple months, Opie and Anthony got fired, and I ended up on the air full-time at night at WAF, which back in 1998 was a shit show. I mean, we could get away with anything. It was crazy. Well, that's what you know, I remember. Just, I'm like, yeah. Wow, these guys, you hear about I'm moving to Boston, like all these people, like Puritans. They're you guys were crazy. It was nuts. Yeah. It, was, it was nice. And we were, you know, you mentioned WBCN, who was this big established rock station in Boston, and AAF was always like the scrappy younger brother. Right, right. And so we would try anything. 
and and it was always like you know it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission and that was our mantra so we would just do all this crazy stuff and then try to apologize for it later if it went bad and that's kind of they were like you know let's throw this girl on the air at the time I had graduated college. I had started working as like a rock roadie. So I was driving trucks and building light rigs and stages. And I was still working at the radio station. So they were like, there's this crazy foul mouth Boston chick with bright purple hair. Just throw her on the air and see what happens. And it worked. So I never left. And I went from working at night to working during the day. And then um, I became the music director, I don't know, maybe 13 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that. And then I was on in the afternoon. Now I'm back on during the day. So it's like I'm a barnacle on this ship. They're going to have to scrape me off to get rid of me. Are you still really in the heavy metal and rock and roll? Is that what you really love or is that just, you know, something that you picked up along the way? No, I was always into that. That's what made me want to get into radio in the first place, like. I just always loved rock music. My mom and dad were huge music fans, and I grew up in a house that always had music playing. Nice. And so I just always loved it and going to rock concerts and, you know, hanging out with my friends and and waiting out in line to buy a new album the day it went on sale and waiting out in line all night to buy concert tickets. Like, that was what I loved. And I still love it now, finding that band that nobody's heard of yet or, you know, going through and finding a track on a record that nobody pays attention to. Like, I still love all of that stuff. But I think my spectrum of music love has gotten a little wider. Nice. You know, the the things that I'm a lot more open minded than I was when I was younger as far as the different styles of music that I like and and. But, you know, hard rock, heavy metal, all that stuff, I still love it all. So uh, three bands I'm really into, well, for a while and right now, I I love King's X. Yep. I love Winter Sun, even though he's a complete nut job. He he puts out good music, Yari. And uh, I like this Italian band called Ex Dio. Those are my three that you'll, you'll hear me listen to right now. What's, what do you like? What's like really pumping you up in the morning when you're getting ready to do, do this thing? Well, King's X before coffee, that's a lot of math. It's like listening to Rush without coffee. It's like I'm not smart enough early in the morning to even put that on. Um, I, I, like everybody else, have you know been sitting by the phone waiting for the call that we're going to get a new Tool record. They're one of my favorite bands. I love them so much. I don't know if or when we're ever going to get another album, but I hope we do. Yep. Um, I, you know, as far as really, really new stuff goes, I am loving this new Foo Fighters album. It's so heavy and got so much attitude. I just think Dave Grohl just really wants people to pay attention to hard rock again and, and you know, is just taking no prisoners with it. So I, I love that record. Um, God, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Bands like um, uh, Greta Von Fleet. Have you heard of these guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they sound like Janis Joplin and Led Zeppelin had a baby. And they're in their 20s from Michigan. And it's like, where did these guys come from? Um, but I love Royal Blood is another band I'm obsessed with. There's so much noise coming out of two dudes. They're just awesome. Right. Um, but there's a lot of great music out there. You know, you just got to find it. You do have to find it. Um, 
people tell me that rock and roll and heavy metal is dead. I'm like, no, you just got to know where to look. It's it's still there. And there's, and there's dedicated fans. It's not fans. dead. It's just there's a lot of crap. I think everybody thought when the internet really took over the music business that there was just going to be this deluge of amazing music. And all it really did was highlight the fact that not everybody can be the Beatles. And so now – You've got to sift through this wall of noise on the internet and find that one diamond in the rough because any band in a basement can all of a sudden have all their music up on the internet and they think they're great, but they're not. And and it's they sound like everybody else or they're doing things that have been done a hundred times before and so the internet really kind of muddied the waters and made it a little bit harder to find these bands. And people have also, you know, their attention span is so short now that if a band doesn't hit huge mass appeal popularity on the first single, on their first record, they don't get a chance. And if you go back and look at all the bands you love, it took the second and third album before they really hit their stride. And a lot of bands don't get that opportunity anymore because – the labels don't want to fund them to get to their third record. And the labels that do, which are a lot of these niche labels now, the ones that will stick with an artist and really just get them in the studio with writers and encourage them to just keep writing and writing until the right songs come out, those labels are the ones that are churning out these bands that are becoming really popular because they're actually creating something great. Well, there's good music out there, and I think, you know, I agree with you. A lot of it is just fine. It there's there's almost too much. It's almost too like you go to the buffet and there's too much to choose from. I think we suffer from that. You know, as, as I was listening to WAF, I started noticing that you started really trending to using your time on the air to talk about military and veterans issues. And, and there was a 9/11 that happened that really people started noticing. But over time, people fade away from that. But you've always kept true to that. So I'm. I'm curious, is there something in your family or personal life that you want to talk about that really kept you on track for advocating for veterans? Because I can't ignore that, which is kind of why we're talking. You seem really authentic about that. Well, I grew up in a military family. Uh, my great-grandfather served in the Army in World War I. Uh, my grandfather served in the Navy in World War II in Korea. My dad's best friend was a, a paratrooper in Vietnam and um, has a purple heart because he was shot in the neck. And he, growing up, you know, we didn't know what PTSD was. Um, And growing up as a kid, you know, I called him Uncle Froggy, even though he's not really my uncle, but that's what we called him. And I remember being a young kid, probably four or five years old, and it was the 4th of July, and I remember somebody lighting off, like, firecrackers or something, and Uncle Froggy dove under the table. And I remember thinking that was hilarious. And I had no idea that it wasn't funny at all. And my dad, his draft number got pulled for Vietnam, but because his younger brother was still a minor and my dad was running the family bakery in the business at the time he was providing for the entire family so they wouldn't take him and my dad lived with the regret of not serving even though his number got up because so many people were trying to find a way to get out of going to Vietnam his number got pulled and he was ready to go but they wouldn't take him and then his best friend goes gets shot and doesn't come back the same so my dad ended up being a paramedic and a firefighter and 
Another one of my uncles was a cop. So I just grew up with this inherent respect and admiration for anyone that puts a uniform on in service to their community and their country. My mom is a nurse. My dad was a firefighter. There's so much military lineage in my family. I'm not medically eligible to serve. So it was always impressed upon me that you have to do something, that you have to there, – there has to be something in your life that gives back. And, you know, when I got into radio, you know, the first, like, year I was on the air, maybe year and a half, so, like, 98, 99, those were big years in rock music. I mean, that's when, like, Corn and Limp Biscuit were on TRL on, on MTV. It was a huge renaissance of rock music back then. It was, yeah. And it was a big party. And AAF was throwing that party. And and so I really had a chance, you know, as a girl in my mid-20s, you know, to, to live that life. And let me tell you, it was fun, but it's not fulfilling. And I remember, like, I had done some things with different branches of the military. But when 9-11 happened, we pulled all the music and all the commercials and everything off the air instantly. As soon as that second building got hit... And then that first tower came down. We knew what was going on, and a rock station had to completely change gears and become a news station and an outlet for our audience. And it was very clear to me that the guys listening to my show were going to be the ones fighting whoever did that. And when all of the the war efforts really kicked in and all the branches were recruiting, we were running commercials for all the branches of the military, trying to get people to enlist. And then after the big invasion, we started hearing back here, you know, how awful the troops were. Because, you know, looking back in history, like not everybody was happy we went into Iraq and not everybody was happy we were in Afghanistan. And there were a lot of protests about that. And I started asking questions to the military saying, listen, you're using me to help recruit, to send these guys over there. And now I'm hearing they don't have the gear they need. They don't have the training they need. Uh, they're doing really bad things over there. Um, Halliburton's getting rich. Like, what the hell is going on? And so that really galvanized my resolve to make sure that the guys and, and girls, but I just say guys collectively right. as troops, um, that they were getting what they needed to do the job and that – that we were hearing the truth because I, I remember because of my uncle froggy, I remember growing up having a lot of attitude about my parents' generation, you know, that late sixties Vietnam era generation and how they treated people like my uncle froggy when he came home. He was one of those guys that landed in uniform at Logan and had to put civilian clothes on in the bathroom and throw his uniform away because people were spitting at him. People don't believe that, but that really did happen. Oh, it across, really happened all across yeah. the country. It was a, dark, dark chapter for what yeah. we did to our troops. And I remember saying to my parents back then, my generation would never do that. Your generation sucked because you didn't do it right. My generation wouldn't do that. If we ever went to war, my generation would treat our troops better. And growing up as a child of the 70s and living through the 80s, all of the military conflicts we had were, were small. I didn't grow up in a time of war like everybody in my generation did. So when 9-11 happened, I knew – we're going to war. All that smack I talked about the Vietnam era and how they treated their veterans, I had to back it up now. 
And so I, I took it as my responsibility and also as my way to contribute and give back in the, the way that I could. Well, one, so of things that, one of the things that struck me is, you know, I had gotten out of the Marine Corps and didn't go back in, but one of the things that kept, you know, my interest was we'd see pictures of guys with WAF stickers overseas in Afghanistan, Iraq, and then, you know, we'd see the Mrs. Carey, you know, thumbs up, and I'm like, wow, this, this, this place really does walk the walk. And then I understand that you went over and got embedded. You're like one of the first ones that did that. What was that like? Yeah. They, well, the guys started sending me stuff. <laughs> and so I, you know, just sending me little, um, you know, the little, the bottles of hot sauce you get in your MREs. Sauce. I yeah. Of those. So guys would empty those and fill them with sand and send them back to me and say, this is sand from, you know, Baghdad. This is sand from Fallujah. This is sand from Ramadi, wherever. And then I started sending them stuff back. We actually did a care package drive at the very beginning of the war, and listeners donated all this stuff. And we sent about 2,000 care packages overseas. And in every one of those care packages was our bumper stickers and a picture of me and, you know, autograph, thanking them for their service and all of this stuff. And so then I started getting these pictures back. And this was all coming in the mail because the Internet was still not what it is today. Right. Back then, in 2001, 2002, 2003, so then I started getting envelopes back with, like, real pictures of, like, these guys with my bumper stickers everywhere and, and T-shirts and, you know, just all of this stuff, stuff I probably shouldn't even have. Um, and so when I really started asking questions about what the hell is going on over there, you know, the guys would say, well, you know, they, there's people over here on USO tours. Like, well, how come you can't come over here? And I was like, I don't know. Let's try. So originally there were some guys at Hanscom Air Force Base that were going to smuggle me. They were going to put me on like a C-130, land, drop off a bunch of stuff in Baghdad, let me hang out with some guys while they refueled and then fly home. And it was going to be this – I mean, this just shows you how nuts we were. And we were seriously trying to do it, not, not asking anybody for permission, just dropping me there Wait. for like – can you just imagine how crazy that is now? It's crazy. Oh, yes, it's crazy. So then I reached out to the USO, and the USO, you know, they don't want to single anybody out. So they want to be just as open to someone from the Air Force in Alaska as they are to the Marines in Florida. And I'm regionally recognizable, not nationally recognizable. So I really didn't meet their USO criteria. And so I, you know, now I got a bunch of guys that are overseas and I was friends with a lieutenant colonel that was at CENTCOM and he and I would mail stuff back and forth. And, and I was like, how can I get over there? The USO won't take me. You can't smuggle me anymore. Like, how can I get over there? And it was his idea to have me apply to, for the embed program. And he was like, listen, it's a long shot. You know, you're not a traditional member of the media, but here's the packet. Um, don't write Mistress Carrie. Write your real name. Don't write WAF. Write the company that owns you. Just, you know, be as generic as you can and send the packet back to me, and I'll see what I can do. And so I told everybody, and this was in like 2005. I told everybody here, like, oh, I'm going to try and go overseas. And it was like your little kid coming to you and telling you, I'm going to build some wings out of a bed sheet and I'm going to learn how to fly. And everybody just looks at the kid and goes, oh, that's really cute, but it'll keep you occupied for a while. So, yeah, go ahead, honey. See if you can fly. And so nobody here thought I was going to be able to pull it off. And I don't even think that anybody, you know, over there thought we were going to pull it off either. But we submitted the packet and slowly but surely – 
I would get a message from CENTCOM that was like, well, we got a, we got signed off at another level, another signature, another person signed off on it. And then it was, you may want to think about how you're going to get over here. And then it was, uh, you may want to think about getting some shots. And then all of a sudden, like the lawyers back here at the radio station got involved and I'm having meetings about who's going to pay to transport my remains if something happens. Because I ended up going over there for the 5th anniversary of 9-11. So I was in Baghdad in September of 2006. And in that time is when all of the reporters were getting killed. That's when they were decapitating people on the internet and really going after the media because there was so much media there at the time. And so that's when I ended up going over there. So I got embedded with a lot of troops from Massachusetts, which – my mission was to go over there and let them know that people from home were thinking about them. But it was also to be able to come home and advocate on the troops' behalf and to be able to tell their story about what was really going on and have it not go through the filter of whatever side of the spectrum of the media was reporting the story, that I just wanted to know the truth. If the troops were doing good things, I wanted to tell that story. And if bad things were happening, I wanted to tell that story too. And, and what, what, did, what did you see? How did it affect you when you were over there? Um, well, the biggest criticism I had was things like how much they were charging to to feed the troops in the chow halls. I think at the time it was $26 per meal per day per soldier or Marine or airman. And, you know, if you ever ate in those chow halls, you weren't getting a $26 meal. And they were paying third country nationals like a dollar a day to work in the chow halls. So the profit margin on those chow halls was massive. And those, were, those were private contractors. That's right. Yeah, it was Halliburton and KBR and all of these companies. And when I really started drilling down on, like, what things cost – because people were at that time were really starting to complain about how much this war was costing. We kept sending more and more people over there. And and what's the exit strategy and, and what's going on? And then the other thing I learned was, you know, I, I was getting tours through like Saddam's palaces and, and really kind of learning. I went to Camp Cropper, which is the prison that replaced Abu Ghraib. So after all of the Abu Ghraib crisis and all of those pictures came out, they moved the insurgents to Camp Cropper. And the guys that were serving as the guards on the prison grounds were from Massachusetts at the time. And they had never let a civilian in there. And they let me go in there. They didn't, I didn't get to get near the insurgents and prisoners, but I got to get in there close enough to get to the guys that were guarding the insurgents because those guys were working 12-hour 12 sh- 12 shifts seven days a week. So they never got to go to the USO shows. They never got to go, excuse me, they never got to go to the PX. They had to have everything brought to them because they were always working. And so they were like, you know what, we want to do something cool for these guys and we're going to send you in there. And I remember they sent me in with coolers that had stuff to make salad and steaks to grill. And these guys had been working for months in the heat in Iraq. And they were like, we're having a barbecue today with Mistress Carrie from AM. Are you kidding me? And so as I'm sitting down just listening to their stories, some of the guys had no idea why they were even there. And a lot of civilians at home really didn't know what was behind the war. And then other people would show me, well, this is where they were killing people and this is where you know the money was going. And I was hearing stories about um, 
you know, chemical weapons, and we found stuff over there, but everybody at home was saying they couldn't find chemical weapons, but I was embedded with guys that were like, oh, they found that stuff. You're just not hearing it on the news. So I was learning a lot about the different tribal areas of Iraq and why the 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 whole peace in the Middle East concept was so complicated and and the difference between Sunnis and Kurds and I mean, even to this day, I don't understand it, but I understand it way more than I did before I went there. Well, that's the thing. People don't understand just how different from us, if you will, or the Western world, that part of the world is. And it's been like that for tens of thousands of years, and you're just not going to reverse it with a click of a button. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and you've got people that live in the north that can be cut off from port access in the Gulf. And you've got people in the south with the Gulf access, but they don't have, like, say, the oil that needs to go through the Gulf. And so you've got all of these different battling tribes that, if they could work together, could have a very symbiotic relationship, but they all hate each other. And the government's over there trying to build up infrastructure and fight insurgency and negotiate through all of these different tribal elders and – you know, it just, it's such a complicated issue. And I realized, A, how uninformed I was as an, as an American. B, that we were asking our troops to go over there and do jobs that really, like winning over the hearts and minds of the people in these villages is not what they learned in their training before the deployment. But it was the mission that was being asked of them once they got over there because. If you couldn't win over the hearts and minds and couldn't get people to trust you, you couldn't get information about where the bad guys were. And this gets made even more complicated by the fact that all of the units that are on the quote-unquote front lines for the Americans don't have any women in them. And all of the women in the villages are the ones that know everything, and they can't speak to American men. So you're trying to get information, but you can't get it. You're, You're living. I mean I try to explain to people what it's like over there. It's like living in the Flintstones. That's what it looks like over there in places. And so it was just really complicated. And I had a crash course in foreign policy and diplomacy. And while I'm doing that, I'm I'm learning how to load a 50 cal and learning how to throw grenades just in case the convoy I'm in is under attack. And I'm flying on medevac Blackhawk missions where I saw a guy outside of Talil Air Base in southern Iraq hurt himself trying to blow up the base, and then the Americans went off base to pick him up and bring him to a hospital to take care of him, even though he just blew himself up trying to bomb the very base that they were on. And Americans didn't even know that that stuff was going on, that we were taking care of the locals that were getting hurt and giving them medical care and all. I saw all of this with my own eyes, you know, at one point, that, that guy that blew himself up trying to bomb the base, they were doing a, 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 a transfer with two Blackhawks that were both, you know, rotating on the tarmac, and they had to carry the litter from one Blackhawk to the other, and they were like, Carrie, get over here and take one of the corners. And I'm running across a 130-degree runway with a bunch of helicopter crew people carrying a terrorist who just blew himself up and i'm going but i'm just a purple-haired dj from boston like how the hell did i end up here 
And those experiences, when I came home, those guys that I was embedded with over there, I know without question would have taken a bullet and died to protect me while I was with them. Well, and you know, that's the thing because I, I see a lot of people who, you know, want to advocate for the vets and we know who's for real and who's not. And it just seemed like over time that, you know what, there, this woman is for real. She's not one of those flash in the pans or just trying to get, you know, social media likes. Like you have a real desire to advocate for veterans. And it just really was communicated without you preaching about it, if you will, over the last couple of years till where we are now. And you know, I'm just shifting gears here a little bit, if I can. I, I see what you do with uh, PTSD veterans. I see what you do out in the community. You don't tell anybody no if they need help or you can tell them where to get help. You're at the Marine Corps balls, things that, you know, I can't get other Marines to do. And then I see, if if I can, the picture, the infamous picture with you and Senator Warren <laughs> and the Internet blows up. I'm like, you would have thought you, you were staying with Hitler. Yeah. And I just want to talk about that because I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm like, these people don't understand how this all works. She has an opportunity to take a picture with a senator from our state, a senator who may or may, I don't want to get political, but I'm like, you have an opportunity to sit there and talk to a senator about veterans or you can ignore. Well, I think you want to sit there and talk to her about veterans or something important to you, and it just seemed like it got blown out of control with a butthurt. Well, here's, here's, the, here's what happened. So every Tuesday, a group of veterans come into the studio down the hall at one of the other radio stations that we own, WRKO, because there's a veteran show on, on Saturdays yep. on WRKO. And those guys record that show ahead of time. And there are three di different generations of veterans, and I see them every Tuesday. They walk by my studio. I've, I see these guys at all different events and all of this stuff. So they always come and say hi. And depending on who the guest is or whatever, they always bring the guest in to say hi to me. And they're always so sweet to say, you know, Carrie's a great advocate for us, and she's been overseas. Because once I got home from Iraq, I ended up going back overseas, and I've been to Afghanistan as well. So these guys are always fantastic. And they had – put a request in to have Senator Warren come in because she is drafting some veterans legislation. And I don't know enough about the legislation um, to be able to expound on it right now, but I know that that's why they invited her in. And I also know that they didn't have a huge window of time with her to be able to dive into every controversial stance on every socio-political issue that she has. They're veterans who have a veterans radio show, and they wanted to talk to not only one of their two senators from their state, but she's also on the Armed Services Committee. Yes, yes. So she's incredibly powerful when it comes to things that influence our military and our veterans. And so they get her in there. She sits down to her credit, no matter how you feel about her, to answer direct questions in person from three different veterans of three different branches of the military and different eras of service. And so when that was done, they were walking back down the hall. My studio door was open, and they came in and said, Senator Warren, this is Mistress Carey from WAF. She's a huge supporter of ours. I said, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you for taking such great care of these guys and coming in to answer their questions. Please do everything you can to support our troops and veterans. And then one of the guys – from the show, one of the veterans said, do you want to take a picture? And I said, sure, of course. Right. I took a picture with her, and they left. That was literally the, literally the
really the extent of my interaction with Senator Warren. And I put the picture up online kind of lighthearted because there's this incredibly conservative looking senator with her pearls and, you know, her glasses and her pantsuit standing next to the purple haired rock DJ. And I'm thinking this is like an odd couple moment. And I thought the picture was hilarious. I thought it was great. And the caption was like, you never know who you're going to run into in the halls around here or something like that. Hashtag Senator Selfie. And I put it up on Facebook. And literally, you would have thought that I dove into the darkest depths of the ocean to find Osama bin Laden's corpse, dragged him out of the water, (laughs) propped it up like Weekend at Bernie's, and was like, here I am hanging out with my homie. Like, literally, people reacted like that. And I heard everything from... Oh, my God. It was like... She sucks. You should have never spoken to her. You're a traitor. You should have kicked her down the stairs. You should have stabbed her. You're a traitor. Everything you've ever done with the military is is gone now. You've turned your back on our troops. Then it started getting into, um, you know, uh, I forget one of them. All of the the threatening ones I, I had to report to Facebook, but it was like, you know, there's a couple bitches that deserve to get raped. Then it was, um, you know, I, I've never seen two throats that were uh, more worthy of being slit. Like, so it went from me thinking that this was like a lighthearted, you know, clash of two opposing worlds kind of picture to me being threatened with my life. Well, and I was like, do people not understand i tried defending myself at first because i was like why wouldn't i talk to her she's a senator from my state who's on the armed services committee when when they were trying to when when general mattis or secretary mattis was going through his his approval hearings she was sitting in those hearings like she is incredibly powerful when it comes to all things military and veterans whether you like it or not and so i'm like I had 30 seconds, 40 seconds with this woman that I'll probably never be in the same room with again. <laughs> and I said to her, thank you for taking care of these veterans, meaning the guys that she was willing to sit down and answer their questions. And please do everything you can to support our troops and veterans. Well, the Period. One th- the one thought that comes out is I, I saw all the comments and all the, the stuff and I'm hurt and, you know, you, you hurt my feelings and then, you know, you brought up something in your later comments, but something that I tell people all the time, regardless of your political affiliation, if you really don't like that person, you don't think they're advocating for veterans effectively, vote them out. Yeah. And, and then you look at the voting numbers in her district over the last couple of years, and you realize most of the people haven't voted in the first place. They're either not registered, or they don't show up for the primaries, or they don't vote. And I can't tell you how many times people have commented uh, your vote doesn't count. It's all a sham. And I'm like, really? Do you really think because Trump got elected, even though the polls said he couldn't win because people got out and voted and shocked everybody when he got elected? So and he's of- the president because people went out and voted. I'm it like, works. you got to look in the mirror and say, OK, I'm going to go out and do this thing. And then the other thing I'm like, you know, how about respect for the office? Maybe you don't like that person, Republican, Democrat, whatever, at least understand that, like you said, she is this one of those senior senators from Massachusetts who serves on the armed 
you know, Senate Arms Committee. She is incredibly powerful when it comes to that area of government, and we want her on her side. So why wouldn't you at least extend her some courtesy? And it just goes over people's heads. And people were like, she doesn't do anything for veterans. You should never have even talked to her. And I'm like, well, first of all, it's not like she was on my show. She walked in my studio at the request of three veterans who she did go in to be interviewed by. And am I foolish enough to think that that interview she did with those guys is going to completely open her eyes to something new? Probably not. But you know what? She sat down with three veterans for 15 minutes. They were able to speak their piece, ask questions about her legislation, and then she probably walked into my studio, saw this purple-haired girl, and maybe she wasn't expecting me to say, please do everything you can to support our troops and veterans. And maybe for two seconds she was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that to come out of this girl's mouth, but it did. And you know what? She probably hasn't thought about me since, but I took the little time that I had to advocate on behalf of the people that mean the most to me and the issues that mean the most to me. Yeah. And if nothing comes of it, at least I can say I tried. Absolutely. And, and the ignorance of the people that were, you know, they were saying, well, she's a perfect example of term limits. And I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about because she got elected in 2012. Even if there were Senate term limits, she wouldn't have violated those term limits. She hasn't been in Washington that long. Educate yourself, you morons. Yeah. I understand you don't like her. Telling me, oh, well, I would have stabbed her in the face and pushed her down the stairs. I'm like, really? Really? You would have committed multiple felonies and a borderline terrorist attack on a seated member of the Armed Services Committee. You're willing to spend the rest of your life in a federal prison because she walked in the room? I sincerely doubt that. I guarantee you, you would have said hi to her, too. So stop, stop acting like a big Internet tough guy behind your keyboard. And acting like I was supposed to be completely disrespectful to this woman. Like, shut crazy. up. It's crazy. Shut up. You show me one politician that you agree with every single thing that comes out of their mouth, and I will call you a liar. Yep. Because even the most strict Trump supporters, there is something they don't like about the president. The number one thing I hear is he needs to get off Twitter. But – you can't tell me with any level of certainty that every single thing that a politician stands for you agree with. The whole, the whole manner of our democracy is about compromise. It's about saying, I'm not giving you 100% of, of what you want. You're not going to give me 100% of what I want. So let's sit down and come up with a number that makes us both as happy as we can be. Is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? Is it 50-50? Where are we negotiating here? And let's figure that out. That's your friggin' job. On that thought, you, you've been in our world, our veterans' world, for a long time now. What's, what's the most pressing thing you think that we need as veterans in this country right now? The thing that I come back to over and over again, and I'm going to preface this statement by saying, I realize I am a civilian. I never in a million years would say my no, experiences no. overseas. If I may, if I may, if I may just yeah. for a second. You know, I, I hear that a lot. Well, I'm a civilian. I'm a woman. I can't do anything. And I, I'm like, you know, that's, that's total BS because I found that women can understand need and, and a man. And, or when I say men, there's more male veterans than female veterans. But women, I, I've worked with them, and they understand need and how to supply that need and meet that need. So I get what you're saying, but I don't think it really matters. Well, I just I just never want people to think that because I spent two weeks in Iraq and two weeks in Afghanistan that I understand everything you went through. Fair enough. I, 
Then, you know, I, I I know what Kabul smells like. I understand how you know cramped. What we smell like. Yeah, I know what you guys smell like. Like, I I have a little bit more of an idea than the average civilian, sure. but I want to make sure that people understand that I no way, shape, or form attribute my experience to that of a veteran. It's Fair not the enough. same Absolutely. thing. Okay. That being said, um, in my opinion, in my experience. The biggest thing that I see in the veteran community that does the most damage is isolation. That especially with the with the guard veterans that come back because at least if you're active duty you you go back and you're still in that world. You come back from overseas, you're still in that very structured military world until you get out of the military fully. Whereas with the National Guard, you go from serving full-time overseas for a year or however long you're there to coming home, and then you don't go back around those guys until you go to drill. And in the meantime, you're expected to go back to your day job, go back to your house, go back to all of your civilian pressures, and be able to downshift that fast. That's crazy to think that anyone can do that without having some level of difficulty. It doesn't work that way. You're, you're absolutely right. It doesn't work that way. And the thing that I see most often is, especially with the guys that get out when they come home from their deployment, is they go from the brotherhood, the structure, the I've got your back, you've got my back, to being completely isolated from that group. You know, you, you say, okay, well, there's 100 guys. They all serve together. When they come back, 20 of them get out of the military. So those 80 guys, even if they're only going to drill one weekend a month, they still are connected to each other. And the Christmas party for the unit or the the ball at the end of the year, but those other 20 guys are now outside of the military's email system. They're outside. I mean, thankfully, things like Facebook keep them connected, which was not always available the way that it is now. So the veterans early in these wars had a harder time staying connected than I think some of the guys do now. But the isolation that I see with these guys is they don't want to be perceived as being the only one that's having a hard time. So if they're having money trouble, if they're having marital problems, if they're having a hard time finding a job, if they're just having a hard time processing their experience, if they're having nightmares, if they have, you know, PTSD symptoms, maybe they're struggling with an injury that because they're not in the military anymore and they don't have a purple heart or, or you know, their injury wasn't documented overseas, now they're outside of the spectrum of the VA or they're trying to navigate the VA system and now all of a sudden they don't want to be viewed as the weak guy from the platoon or from the squad or whatever, so they don't say anything, and they they don't want somebody to ask them how they're doing because they don't want to have to answer the question honestly, and they don't want to lie, so all of a sudden, that guy gets isolated, and that guy is outside of that group, losing their tribe, and now they're outside of the tribe, and their family doesn't understand them because they weren't there. Their civilian coworkers and their bosses don't understand them because they're civilians and they've never served. And now they're isolated on an island unto themselves. Yeah, I, I, I didn't serve in combat, but when I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I rode my motorcycle from Arizona to here and experienced that to a degree. No family, no brotherhood, no nothing. It was a very lonely, rude awakening to a different world, and I can certainly relate. And, and that is a thing that I would agree with, is you get out of that shelter you have of brotherhood, 
and you truly are alone in a, a lot of ways. Even though you're around people, even though you're you're going to barbecues, they don't understand certain things that you do. And if people don't understand something, they, they make fun of it or they stay away from it. It's a very uh, difficult thing, and a lot of guys don't know how to deal. I can only speak from my limited experience. And I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I, I do a lot of veterans advocacy work, and I talk a lot about what my trips were like. And I can tell you that when I got home from Afghanistan in 2011, we landed at Logan at like 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, right? So one minute, I'm in Afghanistan having the crap scared out of me, and the next thing – I'm at Logan with an iced coffee in my hand, right? I get driven home, and there's a welcome home party waiting for me that I had no idea was there, and I was exhausted. I I felt horrible that I was home, but my guys weren't. And that next morning, I had to be back at work. I had to come back to the radio station. And I remember that next morning, walking through the halls, and, and the guy that went with me, my producer, Mike, um, he and I were like zombies, right? And we're walking around the halls. We hadn't adjusted the time change. We, we couldn't believe that the last two and a half weeks had even happened. Somebody walked up to us in the hall and said, we didn't even know you guys were home. And then we ended up in a meeting talking about concert – I mean um, talking about T-shirt logos and designs. And I remember sitting in that meeting looking at Mike, and we didn't have to say a word to each other. The look alone said everything because it was like – who gives a fuck about these T-shirts right now? Nobody in this room even has an understanding that yesterday we were in Afghanistan. And today we're in this room and they're all looking at us like, why? what's the matter? What's wrong with you guys? And that, that downshift was difficult for me. And I was only gone two and a half weeks. The downshift after being on a year-long deployment that could have been your third and coming home, and you're coming home to money problems, a strained marriage, kids that are trying to adjust to you being home because for the last year you haven't been able to be there for birthdays and Christmas and parent-teacher conferences, and you just realize that your whole life went on without you being there because your wife or your husband and your kids had no choice but to go on without you. And you're trying to find a job and, and all of a sudden all of the pressures that you were able to ignore because you had to focus on your missions overseas like how is the mortgage getting paid for or when is the plumber coming to fix the toilet, all of those things come crashing back down on you and no one else around you understands you. And if you're not around your guys to be able to – Talk about those common experiences and be like, oh, yeah, your wife's acting like that. So is mine. Or your kids are acting out because they're not used to having you home. So are mine. Or, you know, yeah, my boss doesn't understand why I have such a short temper when people don't do what they say they're going to do. Or they nobody around them understands them. And so one of the things that I was trying to do was – to put reunions together, to get these guys together on the weekends doing stuff like fishing and, you know, playing cards. And, you know, I've been taking guys on, on skydiving things to kind of get them out of their comfort zone and give them a, an experience to bond over again because it's the conversations that happen in the downtime, the small talk that the guys have. That's where those connections get reformed. 
And all of a sudden, when their guard is down a little bit and they start realizing they're not on that island alone, that every other one of those guys is going through the same thing, the same adjustments, the same pressures of the civilian world, the same survivor's guilt and the, the same, you know, the same issues. They all have the same issues and they just getting them to talk about it. In my experience with the guys that I've had interactions with helps immeasurably. It does because once you realize you're not alone and you have that support system there, you can say, okay, I'm through day 15. I'm due through day through. I'm due. See, this radio thing's not that easy, is it? It never is. No, it, it is much harder than people realize. But I'm human, and, and so, you know what I'm saying? Day 30, day 45, day 72 – Hey, we're going to meet up and we're going to go ride more stuff. We're going to play paintball. We're going to watch a movie. I'm, hey, let's I'm, go to the range and go shooting or Madden time. It's Madden time, bro. Yes. All, all those things come back and, and are still there. So do you? And then have... eventually, you your life slowly settles. Yep. And and that adjustment becomes less difficult. And your social relationships with your family and your friends and your coworkers on this, in the civilian world become less difficult. It took a and long time. That, yeah, it takes a long time. Of course it does. Just answering the How phone. How could it not? Hello? Oh, it's tra- hey, stand by. Stand by. I'll be right back to you. And, and, and my friend's like, dude, people don't answer the phone that way. I'm like, well, I, I, of course we do. So you're supposed to yeah. answer the phone. It's yeah. little things like that that slowly, like you said, you know, work their way out. Do you have any events coming up that you want to share or talk about? Uh, well, I, I'm on the board of 22 Kill Boston. Um, 22 Kill, the veterans outreach organization, started out of Dallas, and, and it was started by some guys that were Marines and originally from Mass. So they opened up a tribe in Boston, and I, uh, I'm on the board and, and do a lot of help with their social media and their – um, event planning and that kind of stuff. And we're always working on motorcycle rides. Um, we're always doing some kind of fundraiser. There's a lot of groups that have actually been coming to us wanting to do um, events that benefit 22 Kills. So we're constantly fundraising and always trying to look for things to fund. Like we did a skydiving thing last month and we paid for 22 veterans of uh, all different eras of conflict, all different branches, uh, male, female veterans, all five branches of the military, and we took them skydiving. Some of them hadn't jumped since they were airborne. Some of them had never jumped, and um, it was all paid for. The whole day was paid for. Their videos, their pictures, everything was paid for, and it was awesome. Um, So I could tell people to go to the 22 Kill Boston Facebook page, um, check out our Instagram, our Twitter feed, and all of the different events and things that we're supporting, different events that are being put on by other organizations that are benefiting us are always getting put up there. And so there's always stuff coming around. So the Danny a, V runs coming up. That's and, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'll have all that stuff on the uh, blog post for this uh, podcast. So check that out and make sure you like the Mistress Carrie Facebook page to stay in the know. Well, I'm going to close this out. This has just been a really good time. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. And is there just anything you want to touch on before you leave? Is there any anything that we should be looking out for locally? Anything like that? Well, 
a little while ago before the the picture came up or whatever, um, you know, we were talking about the my guys and and I I said something like I know you know with with they absolute certainty they, 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 that they would take a bullet from yeah, me. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yes. So the reason why I say that, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic or whatever, but but I say that because the guys that I was with saw me as part of their mission. So of course they would take a bullet for me. Those guys also thought I was the crazy one because I volunteered to go over there and I was unarmed. So when you guys go through boot camp and you train together and you get ready for a mission and you serve together, your agreement is you put your life in my hands. I'm going to put my life in your hands. We're brothers. I got your back. You got mine. And what I really try to impress on people is there is a level because, you, you know, you asked me a couple times why it is that I'm so passionate about the work that I do, why it is that I, that I continue this mission to help veterans and advocate on their behalf and to support our troops. What I need people to understand is that there is a responsibility that I feel, and it's not something that people have put on me, but I feel that it's there, that when I put my life in their hands overseas, they could not put theirs in mine in return. I became a liability for them, a target for them, an unarmed, untrained, you know, liability. And they took me on and made me a part of their group, and they are still my brothers to this day especially in an infantry battalion where at the time women weren't serving with them. And there is a certain amount of guilt on my end that I could so easily put my life in their hands and I could do nothing to reciprocate for them. And so I look at my mission back here and advocating for them as me giving back and having their back for what they did overseas for me. And well, so there's it's not something they've asked for. It's not but there is a certain amount of I need to do everything I can because I know for a fact one of them would have died for me without question. And so it's my job to make sure that when they're home and back on my turf that I've got their back in every way that I can. That's where this all comes from. Well, it's just it's just authentic because you can talk to these guys and we can smell a fake. We can see a phony. And, and the one thing that has come across to me over the years is that this, this, this person's not fake about this. This is not just, you know, look at me kind of thing. And so it, it really uh, spoke to me. They are my family. They are my brothers. I, I grew up with a younger sister. And now I've got hundreds of brothers, and they have been there for me in the years since we've met as much, if not more, than I have been able to be there for them. In time of personal crisis and illness, it was my guys from Afghanistan that took care of me after I crashed my motorcycle. I had a sergeant major of an infantry battalion bringing me lunch at home on his day off because they're my family, and they know I would do the exact same thing for them. I've been there at their weddings. I've gone to the funerals and stood next to them. I've been at their kids' birthday parties. It, it, it's, it's, an, it's an honor to have been woven into their fabric 
and I do not take it lightly, and I am grateful for it every day. That's just a really powerful statement, and it's just a really, it really, I don't know, I just, I'm sitting here just floored, because you don't hear that every day, and you don't see it every day, so I don't, I don't know you, I don't, I never really, you know, talk to you face to face, but like I said, you know, what you do does resonate to us who don't know you, and we just appreciate what you do for us. Well, I, I appreciate you guys. You know, I have the right to go on the air every day and talk about music and motorcycles and all that other stuff because, you know, you guys protect that right. I'm very well aware that I am fortunate to have been born a woman in the United States. I've seen how women live in other parts of the country, and I am very fortunate that, you know, I can speak my mind as freely and as openly into as wide of an audience as I have, and that didn't come freely. You know, that didn't come without a price. My family paid that price. My friends have paid that price for on my behalf. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. And, you know, I just, I just want people to – there's a lot of amazing civilians out there that are untouched by these wars, that don't have anybody that's a veteran in their family, that, that – you know, they, they don't know what it's like to hang a blue star or a gold star in their window. They right. they just they don't know. We have we're fortunate enough to have enough volunteers in this country that are willing to step up and serve and so the vast majority of the populace isn't affected by it. That doesn't mean they're not grateful for it. And there are a lot of people in the civilian world that want to do something to show their appreciation. And whether that's paying for your coffee in the morning because they see you in uniform or they see your veteran plate and so they, you know, pay for your coffee at the drive-thru or they let you cut in line at a busy day or, you know, they offer a, a, vet a veteran's discount at their place of business or they just come up and thank you for your service. And every guy that I know that served is, is very – they find it very difficult to accept those things. They find it difficult – yeah, guys are very – taking the thank yous is tough. Taking – it's not a handout or, or what they view as a charity. It, it, if I can impose one thing, it's that you've got to understand there are a lot of amazing, grateful civilians that want to be involved and want to show their appreciation because they are very aware of what you have sacrificed on their behalf. So let them thank you. Let them show up at a motorcycle ride to benefit, you know, a, a wounded veteran. Let them help and volunteer to help build a house for a guy that came home one leg short than when he went over there. Let them, you know, give you a discount. Take them up on those things. Let them thank you because they really – you are appreciated more than you hear on the news. You are appreciated more than you realize, and there are a lot of very grateful Americans out there that are, are very thankful to have the life that, that they have because of you. And the ones that don't wake up every day grateful, if they put the radio on between 10 and 3 every afternoon on WAF, I'm hoping that they hear something that wakes them up a little bit because it's real easy to kind of take these things for granted. 10 to 3 on WAF every day, Eastern Standard Time. You can hear the mistress. Yeah, and if you're outside of Boston... We stream at WAF.com. Right, you guys do now. 
Yep. You can download our free app. If you text the word app to 97107, you'll get a link back to download our app. You can listen anywhere. We have people listening in Hawaii, people listening on military bases. And you can also tell your smart speakers, like your Google Play or, your, um, you know, tell Alexa, play WAF. You can listen to us anywhere. So, so you have no excuse. No excuse. To do the bidding of the mistress. We're taking over the planet little by little. Love yeah, it. everybody needs a little Boston attitude, even if even if you hate our beloved sports teams. Well, well still... that was the thing. I didn't know anything about Boston, <laughs> didn't know anything about the Yankees, Red Sox thing, but I knew oh boy. I got an education from you and yours. <laughs> I mean, I started learning. And, and I, I hate the Patriots. I don't know why you guys went. Bill Belichick sold his soul to the devil. That's the only reason they keep winning. I don't want to get into that right now, but... <laughs> It's, he sold it at the crossroads. I'm a Saints fan, so it, it's been really tough, really, really tough. And, and I, I, I bought a, uh, I, 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 I bought a Yankees cap, thinking it's okay. Was no. told, no, not no, okay. it, it was just like, what do you, what, get that off. You need to understand the 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 torture and the pain of growing up a sports fan in my era and the eras before mine. Because we lost a lot in big, painful ways for a lot of years. So anybody that's sick of the obnoxious Boston celebrations and the duck boat parades and the championships and all that, we are very well aware of what it's like to lose and lose on the biggest stage and lose in the worst way. So we're goddamn right going to celebrate when we win (laughs) because we know it's not going to happen every time. Well, my – First Patriots game that I ever watched, a guy gave me the tickets for doing some work for him. And I go to the stadium like, this is a pro stadium? So you guys have come a long way, deservedly so. Ah, you were talking about the old Foxborough Stadium with the metal benches? Yeah. There's there's high school stadiums in Texas that are better than this. Yeah, but we never won anything before. And it took the crafts going, okay, we're going to buy the team. We're going to change the mojo. We're going to build a stadium. We're going to change the logos. Bring in a new coach and just... See what happens. Took over. Just took over. Took over. And between that and the Red Sox changing ownership and the curse of the Bambino and then the Stanley Cup and then the NBA championship and hell yeah, we're on a roll, man. Fire up the duck boats. Let's do this. You hate us because you ain't us. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, hey, again. So if you haven't come to Boston, come to Boston. Come to Boston. It's listen badass. to AAF on the app. Listen to AAF on the radio. Get educated. Get in the know about everything and veterans. And get involved. Get involved. Just get roll involved. your sleeves up and just offer an ear. Offer something. You just you never know what kind of difference you're going to make in in some, that maybe that's maybe that's the day they're having the hardest. Absolutely. You know. And call your buddies, man. Reach out. Call them. Tell them you're thinking about them. Come up with some stupid excuse to get together. Anything. Anything works. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Come on the podcast. You'll hear this next week, Thursday, 8 p.m. at OscarMikeRio.com. And, Mistress, I will do your bidding anytime. Thank you again. <laughs> it was an honor. I appreciate you sharing your podcast with me. Right. I would love to come back on. I appreciate it. you got great pipes, by the way. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs>